According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through Scripture. We are in Hebrews 11 still. Hebrews 11, looking at Moses. Starting in verse 20, we get, oh no, verse 23, we get uh, a whole stretch here of Moses' references. Uh, getting all the way through uh, the parting of the Red Sea in verse 29. And then uh, we move past Moses. Joshua is not mentioned by name, but we do have the walls of Jericho that come tumbling down. And uh, Rahab the harlot and the things there. So as we work our way through, this is what's called the Hall of Fame or the Hall of Fame of Faith. This is the testimony of the New Testament to Old Testament believers who walked by faith even though they had far less Scripture than we have, even though they did not have the Holy Spirit we have, they did not have the spiritual gifts we have, they did not have the portfolio of assets we have, and yet they walked by faith. And look what they did. And what is expected of us? How then shall we live? How then shall we walk? Because we have been given so much more. So there's quite a bit that, uh, that we can glean and apply out of this chapter. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer. Remember, God is spirit. He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, it is a blessing to be your child. We thank you for our position in Christ. Thank you for the stewardship in which we operate. Thank you that he is the firstborn of many brethren. And we are those brethren. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing that it is to present ourselves before you as workmen needing not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Father, we call upon your faithfulness, the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit who searches all things, even the deep things of God. Open our eyes to this truth that we might learn it, that we might live it. We thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, well, when we start with Moses then, technically speaking, in verse 23, we're talking about Moses' parents. This is the faith of Amram and Jochebed. This is the faith, not of Moses. Uh, An infant does not tend to apply faith because an infant does not tend to be transformed by the living and abiding Word of God. But it's uh, a passive voice verb that Moses was hidden, so he didn't do the hiding, and he did not apply the by faith activity. That would have been his parents. So this is the faith of Amram and Jochebed. They're not named in Exodus chapter 2, but they are named in Exodus chapter 6, and so you can get the information there. But when he was born, this really serves to kind of bring us to the next section of Hebrews 11. The author is very graciously bringing us this because the last couple of verses have been death. Jacob as he was dying, and by faith Joseph when he was dying. And so we have... Those two verses of as he was dying or when he was dying, now we have this marvelous by faith Moses when he was born. And so it really sets the table and it prepares us now for a whole paragraph that's going to be mosaic related to uh, hiding the infant. Of course, the narrative of this comes in Exodus 2, and we know the story that uh, that Pharaoh wanted all the male children executed because uh, he was afraid that uh, due to how numerous the Jews were becoming, that they would be a threat to his kingdom. And uh, so the, the, the males were to be executed. The, the girls could be kept alive and they could become concubines or, or wives or, or what have you. Uh, that was the, the plan in, Acts chapter two, or in uh, Exodus chapter 2. But of course, the midwives were faithful and they, uh, they disobeyed Pharaoh. And there's a principle there that we need to uh, glean and learn from when it comes to being subject to the authorities over us, uh, which may not necessarily be obedience, uh, as we are still subject in our disobedience and uh, some principles there. So uh, dealing with that, we have uh, the background then for Amram and Jochebed is the faith of Shifra and Puah. In fact, the backdrop for chapter 2 comes in Exodus chapter 1, and there are two midwives. Israel only had two midwives in their bondage in Egypt. The name of the first one was Shifra. The name of the other one was Puah. That does not allow for dozens more, hundreds more, or even any more when it comes to that. Two midwives were birthing the entire Hebrew population at that time. 
And uh, those are little details I won't get into today, but those are critical when you uh, examine the big numbers in the book of Numbers and when you examine the, uh, the number of the tribes and the firstborn and, and some of the other details there. So stay tuned for that. That'll come up in some upcoming work. But their faith demonstrates how fear of the Lord overcomes any fear of man. How fear of the Lord overcomes any fear of man. And so since this is what Hebrews 11 is illustrating, I don't mind looking at it again, but fear of the Lord is going to overcome any fear of man. Exodus 1 says they did not fear Pharaoh. And it's going to come back again and again. Moses is not going to fear Pharaoh. Even though he has to flee Egypt, he's not fearing Pharaoh in that uh, context. All right, so let me uh, hold my finger here in Hebrews and then go back to Exodus. Uh, You'll notice that they did not fear the king. And um, it says in verse 17, the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the boys live. So that's the pattern that we have. We're supposed to obey God. God tells us to obey man. But how do we obey both when man is telling us to disobey God? All right, so now we're left by default. We have to obey God rather than man, and that's what comes down to every time this uh, authority question comes into conflict. So this is the demonstration. I like Psalm 34 as well, verses 7 through 9. We can quote this in our own application. Psalm 34. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. O taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Asherah, how happy is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints, for to those who fear him, there is no want. It goes on, um, I should have included verse 10 in my list. It says, the young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. What a promise. There's ne- in the history of the world, there's never been a believer disappointed by trusting God. There's never a believer on their deathbed that looks back over a life of walking with the Lord and says, boy, I really regret spending my whole life walking with the Lord. That doesn't happen. It is uh, the blessings of, uh, of fear of the Lord. And it allows us to overcome any fear of man, even so far as civil disobedience And this is the example of uh, the midwives. This is the example of Moses' parents. This is the example of the apostles in the book of Acts. Acts 4, 19 and Acts 5, 29. Acts 4, 19. Remember, they had ordered them, quit preaching Jesus. And Peter and Paul, uh, not Peter and Paul, Peter and uh, John said, we have to preach Jesus. What are you talking about? And so um, in Acts 4.18, when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Now this is where it comes down to the either or. This is where it comes down to where Caesar is commanding you to defy God. All right? And so we have to have our right discernment and application. This, is, this doesn't mean, because Jesus said, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. But then he said, and unto God the things that are God's. So we're commanded to obey both. And it's obeying the command of God that we obey man. Does that make sense? Now the only time then that we would disobey man is when man is commanding us to disobey God. Okay? So when Caesar gives a command... When uh, the United States government gives a command or the state of Texas, or if you're ordered to violate the scriptures, if the state of Texas came in here and said, you've you got to quit preaching the Bible, quit preaching Jesus, you have to preach the Quran and Muhammad or whatever, you know, well then I would disobey that command. I would say, sorry, you can't tell me that. I'm obeying God. You can disobey man when they're telling you to disobey God. You can't just willy-nilly disobey, commit all the crimes in the world you want and say, well, you know, no. Because <laughs> God said to be rendering to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Okay? That, this should be clear. I don't have to expand upon that. Next chapter over, chapter 5 and verse 29. And, uh, and once again, 
They were brought before the council in verse 27. The high priest questioned them saying, we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name. And yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. Praise God. You have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The apostles were commissioned to proclaim the resurrection of Christ and that's what they're doing. And so this is by faith. You know, by faith the midwives were lying. (coughs) Remember? This was uh, commented on last week. Pharaoh brought him in and said, how come you're not killing those baby boys? (coughs) And the midwives said, you haven't seen these Jewish women. They're hardy. They, they, they deliver the babies faster than we can get there. They're not, you know, these wimps like the Egyptian girls. These Jewish girls, boy, they, they pump those kids out quick and we can't even get there in time. Now the midwives were lying to Pharaoh. Lying. Hebrews calls it faith. Rahab lies to the soldiers because she had hidden the spies on her roof and she'd let them down and helped them escape. And she lies. Rahab's in Hebrews 11. It's called faith. So you can lie in faith. There's a doctrine for you. Okay? Now, not lying about who stole cookies out of the cookie jar. That's not, that's not lying in faith. And so we have the example here. The beauty of Moses. We ran out of time. We couldn't talk about the beautiful kid that he was, but It's mentioned three times in Scripture. Exodus 2 tells us how beautiful he was as a baby. And Stephen in his sermon in Acts 7 talks about how beautiful Moses was. And the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 11.23 tells us how beautiful Moses was. By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child. Their, their view of his beauty becomes causative. I'll say that again. It's because. He was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child. And they were not afraid of the king's edict. So there's two factors in their decision making. But factor number one is their observation of his beauty. Mentioned three times in Scripture. And that's extraordinary to me that this gets mentioned. Of course, every parent that's ever had a baby has thought they were the prettiest baby that's ever been born. I get that, all right? I'm not going to make all the mothers here mad this morning, but, uh, but your beautiful children were not recorded three times in Scripture as being a beautiful baby. But Moses was beautiful and was stated three times. And what I think this is, demonstrating God's effective planning through human carnality. Demonstrating God's effective plan. Yeah, maybe carnality is too harsh a word. But through human preferences, human appreciation of beauty. God knows. God knows. And He does so here with Moses. Why do you think when, when Pharaoh's daughter fished him out of the Nile and saw, if he would have been an ugly kid, you think Pharaoh's daughter would have kept him? Think about it. She's a pagan. She's not even saved. If he was a little hunchback, dwarf, you know, misshapen, childbirth, kind of, you know, disfigured thing, Pharaoh's daughter wouldn't have kept him. But he was beautiful. And she was emotionally touched. The whole story of Esther. It's a beauty pageant. How does Esther become the queen? What was her audition like? All right? And of course it's Sunday morning and (laughs) some things are more PG-13, but you know, and a lot of, you know, it's not pleasant to think about these auditions and what it's like to try out for the king's harem. And so a lot of times you get good, you know, American evangelical Christian women that say that can't possibly be that. How could Esther have submitted to such a thing? Okay, well, 
Put yourself back in the ancient world and understand that the harem tryouts were sexual. They were uh, beauty. They were beauty pageants, and they were everything else. All right. Esther 2, verses 2 through 4. And then the doctrine that comes with that later in the book of Esther, when Mordecai says, do you know why God put you there? God put you there to save the Jewish people. And if you reject His will, God's still going to save the Jewish people just by some other means. right? Let's, let's look at Esther real quick. All right. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms. In case you're still flipping pages, if you're tapping glass, then your app will take you to Esther and you can find it, no problem. But if you're flipping pages, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms. All right. In Esther 2, verses 2 through 4, the king's attendant who served him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king. Let the king appoint overseers in all the provinces of his kingdom that they may gather every beautiful young virgin to the citadel of Susa, to the harem, into the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch who is in charge of the women, and let their cosmetics be given them. And let the lady, young lady who pleases the king, in other words, gives him pleasure, be queen in place of Vashti, and the matter pleased the king, and he did accordingly. And so this is what happens, and this is how... Uh, Esther uh, gets selected and, and uh, the grace of God that allowed her to pass the audition and, and uh, the things there. But then when uh, Mordecai is exhorting her and the um, this is over in chapter 4 now and uh, so Esther and Mordecai are, are discussing this and Mordecai uh, sends word to Esther. This is Esther 4.13. Mordecai uh, told them to reply to Esther, do not imagine that you and the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. If this massacre takes place, you're not going to escape just because you're the queen. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. In other words, the plan of God is never thwarted because a believer decides to be disobedient. This is your assignment, so fulfill it, be obedient, go do what God wants you to do. If you go carnal and abandon the plan of God, He'll overcome that. His omniscience knows that uh, you're going to flake out and he'll, he'll provide salvation by some other means. But discipline comes to you because this was your assignment. So uh, deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place and you and your father's house will perish. And then he says, and who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. It's a marvelous way to get people thinking when you just ask those kind of questions. Just asking questions doesn't make you Satan. Ask questions and say, who knows? Is this why God has put me here? Is this why he's put me in this position? This is now my assignment. And it may be when you're trying to run with endurance the race that's set before you, you may not even realize you're on that race until you've already made a few turns and go, wow, I'm on this race, aren't I? This is where God's put me. And I don't know where he's taken me, but I know where I am now. And you just walk by faith. It's a beautiful thing. And so when it comes to God and the people that he puts and different things, you know, David was very handsome and, and Saul was very handsome. And, and God uses these things he knows what human carnality is like. He knows what human appreciation is like. He knows, uh, and, and there have been studies done as well about you know attractive people versus ugly people and job interviews and, and whatever. And it's just, it's hilarious that humans are so shallow. <laughs> but I think we get that, all right? And God knows that. And so he designs Moses as this beautiful, beautiful baby. All right. So that's enough on his parents. Now what about him? Because he grows up. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up. Now we've got to cover 24, 25, 26 in this next slide, all right? By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. And there's a whole month of sermons right there. <laughs> the passing pleasures of sin. 
considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Now, there's a lot to deal with here, but this is a a, a powerful text, and it applies to us in so many ways. All right, and this is giving us the consideration, the thought process. We've had it before. We had the testimony of Abraham that when he sacrificed Isaac, he considered that God was able to raise even Isaac from the dead. So Hebrews 11, not only is it telling us the story like Genesis does or Exodus does, it's telling us the story, but it's also adding the thought process. It's adding how they were thinking and what their faith was like. It's a chapter on faith. And so the Holy Spirit is inspiring this. This is God-breathed and inspired. It's absolutely true. And it's good that we have this chapter. Because without this chapter, we would not have known about Sarah's faith. We would have just turned to Genesis and seen Sarah laughing. But in Hebrews, we have Sarah's thought process. In Hebrews, we have Abraham's thought process, that he considered God was able to raise someone from the dead, that he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. All of those considerations are in Hebrews 11. They're not in Genesis. Moses' consideration, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. I am so thankful that's there because it's not in Exodus. Let's look at Exodus. Because Hebrews contains more information than the Exodus portrayal of Moses' adulthood in Egypt. When you look at Exodus 2, verses 10 through 14, you're not going to walk away from that with Hebrews 11, 24 through 26. (laughs) It takes the Holy Spirit to inspire that. Because the text of Acts 2, I'm sorry, the text of Exodus 2 does not take you to write the text of Hebrews 11. Only the Holy Spirit can write that recording Moses' thought process. Make sense? Follow what I'm saying? All right. Are you tracking with me? Exodus chapter 2. All right, so, and of course, sovereignty at work, I'd love this. I didn't talk about this last week, but uh, the fact when, uh, when Pharaoh's daughter adopts him and brings him, uh, she, of course, has a problem. She's not nursing or milking. And, 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 and so Moses' sister offers to be helpful, saying, hey, I can go get a wet nurse for you. And uh, Pharaoh's daughter says, yeah, go do that. So she goes and fetches Moses' mom, you know, the perfect wet nurse for this, uh, this newborn. And... Uh, so uh, the story there, you're talking about God's sovereignty over human uh, decisions. It's amazing. All right. So yeah, so um, in verse 7, this would be Miriam, by the way, uh, his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women that, you may nurse, that she may nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go ahead. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And so Jochebed now gets to stand before Pharaoh's daughter And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give you your wages. So she's going to get paid to nurse her own baby. Isn't that awesome? All right. And uh, the child grew and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses and said, because I drew him out of the water. And uh, there we have it. All right, now we get to his adult life. It came about in those days when Moses had grown up that he went out to his brethren and looked on their hard labors. Now remember, we already just we read that account of faith in Hebrews 11, that he refused to be called the, daughter, the, the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to identify with the Jewish people. But we don't have that kind of detail here. We just have expressions like, in those days. So there's a lot of stuff going on. And Moses had grown up, so years have gone by. He went out to his brethren. How many times? How often? Doesn't say. And he looked on their hard labors. How often? How many times? And uh, with what uh, perspective? Did he join in those labors? Is that how he looked upon them? Doesn't say. This text is very generic. We don't have the detail Hebrews 11 gives us. But then it says, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. 
Well, when did that take place? How, how was this weeks later, months later, years later? When did this all? We don't have the specificity in Exodus, so we just leave it as unknown. But he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he looked this way and that. Let me tell you something. This is not recorded in Hebrews 11 because this is not a faith action. When you're looking around to cover your tracks and see, is anybody watching? Anybody see what I'm doing? When you're checking out for, for uh, you know, harmful witnesses, you're carnal. You're not in fellowship. So he looked this way and that. When he saw there was no one around, ha <laughs> So there's something you want to do, and then you convince yourself you can do it, and then you convince yourself you can get away with it, and there's no consequences. You realize you're carnal long before you ever do the deed. All right. So he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. He commits murder. This is premeditated murder. And this is uh, with cover-up, you know, hiding the body. Then he went out on the next day. Shows you how long his, you know, at least David covered his tracks for nine months before he was exposed. Moses, it was the very next day. Behold, two Hebrews were fighting with each other, and he said to the offender, why are you striking your companion? Now he's going to get involved, as if they care who he is. I mean, who does he think he is? Why, you know, who appointed you the judge of... Well, in fact, that's what it says right here. (laughs) Why are you striking your companion? But he said, who made you a prince or a judge over us? Have you been assigned? Is this your jurisdiction, or do you have the authority? Just who do you think you are? Because he might not be identifying with Pharaoh any longer, but but these people aren't identifying with him, I'll tell you that. And then they say, are you intending to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Oops. And and what can he say? He can't deny it. He can't, can't, I mean, the fact that they say this means they know it, which means multiple people know it. So Moses... Um, he was afraid. And he said, surely the matter has become known. So he has fear. Now these are the details we have in Exodus. We're going to get different details in Hebrews. Both are true. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying Hebrews is right and Exodus is wrong. They're both true and we have to reconcile because God's not a liar. Not one statement God makes is incorrect. Right? That's how we reconcile Scripture with Scripture. Search the Scripture, see if these things are so. Nothing contradicts. There's not one contradiction in the Bible. There are difficult texts to reconcile. (laughs) There are problematic harmonizations. And that's why we study. That's why we're diligent. All right. Because this says he was afraid. Hebrews says he's going to go forth not fearing the king. All right. So he said, surely the matter has become known. Surely the matter has become known. So it's a whole different dynamic at work. So when Pharaoh heard of this matter, he tried to kill Moses. Again, how many occasions? On what occasions? You know, Saul was throwing all kinds of spears trying to pin David to the wall. And over days, weeks, months, I mean, there's a, this, this verse could be any period of time. But Moses fled from the presence of Pharaoh and settled in the land of Midian. He sat down by a well. All right, so that's our text. And Hebrews contains more information than the Exodus portrayal of Moses' adulthood in Egypt. By the way, the movie also does. (laughs) Okay. Because Charlton Heston's involved with chariots and he's involved with building stuff. And he's, there's a lot of Moses' legends, by the way. Philo wrote a thing on Moses and Josephus wrote in his antiquities on Moses. There's apocryphal works about Moses. A lot of Jewish legends about Moses. Moses was the man for uh, in the second temple period and, and so forth. But um, and don't believe the lies either when they tell you that the author of Hebrews was dependent upon Josephus or dependent upon Philo or dependent upon uh, the apocryphal works, the pseudepigraph or any of that. The author of Hebrews had the same Holy Spirit that wrote Exodus, right? We're clear on that. 
that Hebrews is Scripture and it's not dependent upon um, what source criticism tells us. All right. Also, Stephen in Acts 7. Let's look at Acts 7, 20 through 29. Acts 7. Because he talks about Moses in his adult life. And um, again, verse 20 was about this time that Moses was born and he was lovely in the sight of God and he was nursed, nurtured three months in his father's home. And this word for how beautiful he is, it's only used twice. It's only used in Acts and in Hebrews for how beautiful Moses. And it was used on Moses both times. I think it also argues for the Lucan authorship of Hebrews, but that's a different story. All right. Verse 22, Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians, and he was a man of power in words and deeds. Wow, that's good to know. It's interesting, because that's not an Exodus. Right? So how does Stephen know this? Where did this come from? The Holy Spirit inspired this. The Holy Spirit revealed this. And it's recorded for us in the book of Acts. Yes, he was Pharaoh's daughter. What kind of school do you think he's going to? He's going to go to the best school they got. He's going to be the best student they've got. He was a man of power in words and deeds. And when he was approaching the age of 40, it entered his mind to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel. That's certainly a lot more information than we had in Exodus, but it's starting to approach what we're told in Hebrews. And when he saw one of them being treated unjustly, he defended him and took vengeance for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. And we read that. But now here's a thought process. He supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him. But they did not understand. So when you assume that somebody else thinks what you're thinking, you better think again. Because they may not be thinking what you think they're thinking. He just assumed, hey, I can be the deliverer. I can be the hero. And he's wrong. Or he's at least he's 40 years too early. Okay? But he assumed, he supposed, I love that Greek verb, but he supposed that his brethren understood. You know, it's similar when Jesus was 12 years old and he said, did you not know? I must be about my father's business. He said, did you not know? Jesus thought they knew. But they didn't know what he thought they knew. And that's amazing. Jesus was factually incorrect. He was wrong. Didn't sin, but he was factually incorrect. Because they didn't know what he thought they knew. Did you not know? He thought they knew. Same thing with Moses. He, he supposed that they understood. He supposed that all he had to do was say, ta-da! And the Jewish people... We're going to follow him to the promised land, right? You know, could he have been the next Pharaoh? Sure. Who was going to outdo him? Daniel could have been, he could have usurped Nebuchadnezzar's throne and taken it when, when Nebuchadnezzar was out there eating grass in the backyard acting like an animal. Daniel could have just taken the throne of Babylon. It was his for the taking. Joseph could have taken Egypt. Moses could have taken Egypt. They could have been Pharaoh, but they were humble to serve the Lord. All right, so he supposed his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him, but they did not understand. So if you're going to walk by faith, you can't be going on these flawed assumptions. Notice this doesn't end up in Hebrews 11 like Moses' faith does. So on the following day, he appeared to them as they were fighting together, and he tried to reconcile them in peace, saying, men, you are brethren. Why do you injure one another? And this is where it's really, I think he's identifying with his Jewishness. He's identifying with, you know, calling them brethren and their brethren, and why are you fighting? But uh, the one who was injuring his neighbor pushed him away, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? And so the rest of this is pretty similar to... Uh, Exodus. At this remark, Moses fled, became an alien in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. And then after 40 years had passed. You know, if you're going to take matters in your own hands and try to do something through human effort, you're probably just delaying things and making it worse. 
<laughs> so just wait on the Lord. All right, so Hebrews gives us inf- information. Acts provides us the thought process is not recorded in Exodus. But here's the thing. Faith enables believers to endure ill treatment and reproaches. This is what Hebrews 11 says. Before he fled, before he fled was apparently a time of identification with his people where he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And this would be something too, I'd be curious, Glenn uh, is uh, far more trained in Egyptology than I am or I would ever be, but it seems to me, based on my reading, that uh, (laughs) the Pharaohs can get away with a lot. And the Pharaoh can do what he wants. Pharaoh's heir can do what he wants. In other words, if, if, if the man that he murdered, if he really wanted to press charges, all Moses had to say was, hey, I'm the son of Pharaoh's daughter. You want to take me to court? <laughs> you know? I mean, in the ancient world, despotism has, you know, has its perks. <laughs> Meaning the people you want to kill and the women you want to sleep with. And I mean, all the stuff that a pagan king can do. And who's going to stop him? That this thing about refusing to be called Pharaoh's daughter, I believe, is is, uh, synchronized with the murder of that Egyptian and a possible escape clause he could have claimed. Remember when Paul said, hey, I'm a Roman citizen. And, And he could have claimed son of Pharaoh's daughter and ended the trial right there. But instead, what does he do? He identifies with the Jewish people. That's what Hebrews 11 says. It says, By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. So he has an identification with God's people, the people of God. If we're going to adapt this for our purpose today, that would be identifying with Christians, identifying with the body of Christ, identifying with the saints of specifically of Austin Bible Church. Identifying with the people of God to whom I have been uh, assigned the mutual ministry of love and prayer and, and uh, everything else. And faith allows you to do that. You're going to try to do that through human effort? Forget it. You've got to do it by faith. You've got to do that fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. If you get your eyes off the Lord and you get your eyes on people, then you're not going to be identifying with those people because you're going to be finding fault with those people. And you're going to be uh, asking yourself, what have they done for me lately? And I don't think they deserve it and I don't really like them much anyway. But if you keep your eyes on the Lord, then by faith you can endure ill treatment. You can endure the insults, the reproaches, you could be called Satan and just smile and say, okay. Matthew 5, verses 11 and 12. Very well-known. Sermon on the Mount, Beatitudes. And I love the fact that in all of these Beatitudes, you ever track this? It's all in the third person. Blessed are they, 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 those guys, they, those guys. Right? The poor in spirit the meek, the gentle, those who mourn, the peacemakers. And all those, it's all third person. Blessed are they, blessed are they, blessed are those, blessed are they. But then when it gets to verse 11, (laughs) blessed are you. The language shifts to the second person talking to this recipient, Jesus talking to the disciples. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. This is identifying with the people of God. This is identifying, naming the name of Christ. And this is suffering the insults and the ill treatment and the reproaches with the people of God. Well, by faith, just count yourself blessed. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. You're going to have eyes of faith to see that reward in heaven. Without faith, you don't see the reward in heaven. Without faith, you just respond to the insult and you fight fire with fire. And you, you just, you know, fight back. Your mother wears combat boots. So yeah, well, you're a mama. And, you know, you get all these jokes and, and some of them aren't jokes. <laughs> some of them are fighting words. 
Then you rip a helmet off and smack the guy upside the head with a helmet. <laughs> Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. Your reward in heaven is great for in the same way they persecuted the prophets before you. So Old Testament Israel and their stewardship, New Testament church and our stewardship, the pattern is there. Make the application. Romans 8, 17 and 18. Romans 8. We're going to have to find some applications of this, by the way. So before you leave, try to insult somebody. <laughs> and then you can give them the opportunity. All right. Yeah, okay, Warren's volunteer. <laughs> so, we are children. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit. We're children of God. And if children, heirs also, praise God. Heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed, and this is true, since in fact, not only first class, but very first class, intensive, if indeed we suffer with Him. That's not optional. It's a positional reality when you name the name of Christ. This is our position in Christ. If indeed we suffer with Him, so that, purpose clause, we may also be glorified with Him. For I consider that the suffering of this present time, the sufferings, plural, of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. See, faith enables believers to endure ill treatments and reproaches. Just put it on the scale next to eternal glory. And all of the temporal affliction is nothing. It's nothing at all. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 17 and 18. Every time I see that it's the same two verses, 17 and 18, I get scared. I think, okay, that's a typo. Let's double check that. But no, in this case, it's correct. 17 and 18. See, we do not lose heart, though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. You and I are spiritual beings and physical beings. We have an inner man and an outer man. The inner man is the soul spirit. The outer man is the body. And one of those is getting old and falling apart. But the other, the other is stronger, more beautiful than ever before. Because the more you're growing in grace and knowledge, the the more beautiful that soul becomes. Momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen. See, this is faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. We look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. Keep your eyes on what you can't see. That's what it says. But use your spiritual eyes to see what your physical eyes can't look at. For the things which are seen are temporal temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Remember, Jesus created all things, visible and invisible. We're dealing with that now in Colossians chapter 1. So this is faith, and faith enables us to do this. Faith enables us to do this. Identification with the people of God was a great privilege for Israel and their stewardship and it's a great privilege for the church in our stewardship. Now we're going to give you some scriptures, and hopefully we're going to keep these distinct. Don't equate them. Don't conflate them. Keep them distinct. The term people of God is generic. The term people of God is useful because it can be employed in a trans-dispensational context. It's not limited. It's like the term saints. The term saints might apply to Old Testament saints, might apply to New Testament saints, might apply to, you know, it was basically the saints, right? Might apply to the, the holy angels, would be Hagioi, the saints. Don't think because Israel were called saints, the Old Testament saints, and the church is called saints, that we must all be lumped together, we must all be the same thing. Israel is not the church. The church is not Israel. Both can be called the people of God because, of course, Israel was God's earthly people. The church is God's heavenly people. We're both people of God, but for different reasons. 
Identification with the people of God was a, was a great privilege for Israel in their stewardship. And it will be again, by the way. After the rapture, when the tribulation begins, identification with the people of God is going to be a, a big deal. And they're going to have, you know, 144,000 Jewish evangelists and be responsible to preach the gospel in Satan's world with Antichrist ruling and all the horrible things that are coming up. Identifying with the people of God. And they're going to be Gentiles. They're going to refuse the mark of the beast. And they're going to bless the Jewish people. Jesus called them sheep in the sheep and goat judgment because they bless the Jewish people. Identification with the people of God. It's a great privilege. Old Testament, New Testament alike. So Hebrews 11.25 is Moses' example. Identifying with the people of God. Esther. We were just in Esther earlier, weren't we? Chapter 2 and chapter 4. Here's Esther chapter 7. Maybe I should have just stayed there. Esther. All right. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms. Okay. (laughs) Back to Esther again. And um, headed for verses 3 and 4, but chapter begins, the king and Haman came to drink wine with Esther the queen. She had this whole thing planned out. Pretty smart on her part. And the king said to Esther on the second day also, as they drank their wine at the banquet, what is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. What is your request? Even to half of the kingdom it shall be done. Then Queen Esther replied, if I have found favor in your sight, O king... Isn't this beautiful? Favor in someone's sight. If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given me as my petition and my people as my request. So he said, anything you want, even half my kingdom. And, he sa- and she says, just don't kill me. <laughs> you know, what I want is I want to live. I want to live and I want my people to live. For we have been sold it says in verse 4, I and my people to be destroyed, to be killed and to be annihilated. Again, the sovereignty of God is at work because the Persians uh, had to use this device called the pur. Essentially, they were drawing lots. They were rolling the dice to determine when the murder could be. And in determining the date of the Jewish execution, God, who sovereignly controls the casting of every lot, God determined that they were going to have almost a year to prepare. It's a marvelous testimony to God's overruling will. So uh, we've been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Now, if we had only been sold as slaves, men and women, I would have remained silent. For the trouble would not be commensurate with the annoyance to the king. (laughs) There is a mindset. Just enslaving us and packing us off somewhere. She said, I would not have troubled you with something so minor. How's that for... That's a, that's a different world than we typically think of. All right. Then King Ahasuerus asked Queen Esther, who is he and where is he who would presume to do this? Like, this is a news flash to him. He's like, what are you talking about? Who is he and where is he Well, he's sitting right next to you. (laughs) Okay, That's why this whole thing is a setup. And Haman, by the way, he went to this thing thinking he was just the the bee's knees, right? I mean, he just thought he was was being honored. Wow, he gets to eat with the king, with Queen Esther, and ooh, this is great. So Esther said, a foe and an enemy is this wicked Haman. So Haman became terrified before the king. Yeah, bad day for Haman. And... uh, Yeah. So this is the thing. She's identifying with her people at the risk of her own life. Because, I mean, did she know this is how the king would respond? Or, you know, would the king, she didn't know if the king might just respond in another way or say, eh. Say, oh, you're going to get killed? Okay. (laughs) More auditions and tryouts for my harem. I guess I'll find another wife, right? I mean, a pagan king could have had that thought. Anyway, the grace of God here is an amazing thing in, in this uh, episode, but this is the faith. Daniel as well, identifying with the people of God. He's in exile. Daniel chapter 1, Daniel chapter 3. 
He didn't want to eat the choice foods. He didn't want to defile himself. He had to uh, accept the new name and use the new language and go to the new schools and all that stuff and he got his new job in government. But in his personal life, he was a worshiper of Yahweh, Elohim, the Lord God of Israel. And he and his three friends didn't want to defile themselves with the uh, defiled food. So in Daniel 1.8, Daniel made up his mind. He would not defile himself with the king's choice food. This is a personal conviction. And we all should be living on how we're convicted by the Word of God. Made up his mind he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. So he has the discernment to work through the political process to find a way that he can, uh, he can be faithful to his faith convictions, identifying with the people of God. Da- over to Daniel chapter 3. And the uh, golden image and the uh, music and all this other stuff. And um, hmm. So the Chaldeans, they make this great statue. Verse 8 says, For this reason at that time certain Chaldeans came forward and brought charges against the Jews. Because there's a people identifying with themselves as a people. Not identifying with the, uh, the Babylonians. And uh, so they responded and said, O Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, all kinds of music, is to fall down and worship the golden image. The most impressive religious systems often have glorious music. <laughs> there it is. Uh, wouldn't trade our I love our music. I love our hymns. I love our church. All right. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. Well, there's a consequence. <laughs> All right. So are you going to identify with your people or are you going to become an idol worshiper? Because the consequences is death, the fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You know, not to name names, but it's these guys. These men, O king, have disregarded you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. So what faith? What a testimony. You get down to verse 16. So he brings them in. He says, what are you doing? This is like Pharaoh and the midwives, right? The midwives had to answer to Pharaoh. These guys have to answer to Nebuchadnezzar. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire. He can do it. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. He can do it. He will do it. But even if he does not do it, isn't that beautiful? Do you have that kind of faith? God can. God will. But even if he doesn't. See, you can have a a, a conviction that this is what's going to happen, but then you realize, not my will but thine be done. Maybe I'm wrong about this. Maybe the answer is going to be something that I'm not expecting. I'm fine with that too. Because if he doesn't give me what I expect, it means he's got something better. Even if he doesn't. Let it be known to you, O king, that we are going to serve. We are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. I love this text. This is so clear. Identifying with the people of God. What a privilege. Same thing with the church and our privilege. Further down, in fact, do you remember um, back in chapter 10? You say, no, I don't remember chapter 10. We've been in chapter 11 for 355 years. (laughs) All right. We were in chapter 10 not that long ago. And you might recall verses 32 through 34. Because the author of Hebrews was addressing his readers and telling them to remember, remember back in the day. Remember the former days when after being enlightened you endured a great conflict of sufferings. 
There was a tremendous body of priests in Jerusalem that were enlightened in the early chapters of Acts, Acts chapter 6. A tremendous body of priests that were enlightened, that realized, wow, we crucified the Christ. And they became followers of Jesus. And what happened when they did? You endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. You notice that? You got the impart, impart situation here? Just like 1 Corinthians? Impart, impart. Impart, some of you lost your houses, some of you lost your property, some of you had things confiscated. And the others of you, maybe you didn't have your house confiscated, but you identified with them. Right? So partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners. Paul was, Saul of Tarsus was locking up a lot of them and others. Accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Yeah, they can take my house, but guess what? Jesus went to prepare a place for me. He's saying, when I come again, I will take you, I will receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So, you know, and every once in a while it happens on the news, there's a news coverage, uh, a house burns down or something and the people are getting interviewed. They've lost everything they own on earth. And I love it when it's a believer being interviewed who can give testimony to, uh, you know, to what have they really lost? Their treasures in heaven. They're sure they've lost their earthly possessions. What have we really lost? You know, we're laying up treasure in heaven. We're Thieves don't break in and steal, and so forth. So you showed sympathy to the prisoners, accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. You know, when you're identifying with them, (laughs) when you're saying, yep, I'm with them, you realize that? Peter wouldn't do that. (laughs) When they asked Peter, are you you also with him? Oh, no, 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 I don't even know the man, right? He cursed, I don't know the man. Yeah, you are, You're you're a Galilean, we can tell by your accent. Oh, no, not me. Peter denied the Lord three times. These guys identified with the people of God. And you know, if if we're going to have occasions ourselves when we have to identify with us and who we are, and when attacks come in and whatever. (laughs) So, I mean, there it is. Someone calls your pastor Satan, and then somebody else says, oh, you go to that church? Is Satan really your pastor? You got a chance to say, uh, nope, I never heard of the guy. Or, yeah, I'm a part of Austin Bible Church, what do you mean? And just lay it out there. Because we are us. And this is who God's made us to be. Identifying with the people of God. Um, Not only did we have that in chapter 10, but it's going to come back again in chapter 13. Let the let Philadelphia, right? The love of the brethren. Let the love of the brethren continue. Don't ever stop it. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For by this, some have entertained angels without knowing it. I think this still happens today. I think it happened in Old Testament times, happened in New Testament times. I think it still happens today. God's got his under, it's like a, it's a secret shopper that goes into a, a store or something, right? He's got these angels that are assigned to be secret shoppers in your life, in my life. Testing our grace, testing our hospitality, trust, uh, testing our, our uh, Philadelphia love. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them. We have opportunity to serve as though in prison with them. In fact, uh, I've got a missing brother this morning because he's doing a prison visit. Those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves also are in the body. You yourselves are also in the body. So this concept comes back again about our hospitality, about our grace, about our ministry one to another. And this is why we are us. And this week, in fact, illustrates this. Our ministry to Jim, our ministry to, as a widower. And uh, how can we bless him? How can we serve him? How can we assist? How can we... Uh, he's, he's going to need rise to church. He's going to need other things. 
All right. Romans chapter 12. Love Romans 12. There was a stretch, this was years and years ago, but there was a stretch where I think I went uh, about six months where every single Sunday, somehow or other, we wound up, we wound up in Romans 12. And I just always went there, always got there, always kept turning there. And I love the chapter, but Romans 12, verse 9 says, let love be without hypocrisy. If you can't follow this recipe for love, you've got a hypocritical agape love. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. In these days, we get people redefining love, and love is love, and you have to tolerate carnality, and you have to celebrate abominations. And the Bible says that's not love, that's hypocrisy. If you truly love the Word of God, you uh, don't uh, take pleasure in wickedness, but you rejoice in the truth. So let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. So outdo one another in your devotion and in your preference and in your honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Because you're not really serving them anyway. You're serving the Lord when you're serving them. Rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. I went ahead and stopped it there with verse 13, but I think it can even continue. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Do you think we've left a church context when we cross from verse 13 to verse 14? I don't think so. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. I mean, this is all reciprocal. This is all how we as a body minister and serve one another. And it's not every believer on the planet. It's the flock you're a part of. That's the one another context. All right. Finally then, 1 John 2, 15 through 19. 1 John 2, 15 through 19. Because there's us and then there's not us. And why did they leave anyway? 1 John 2.15 says, do not love the world or the things of the world. So if you're a world lover, that's going to be an issue in a congregation that's got their eyes fixed on Jesus. If you're a world lover, that's going to be a problem. I mean, it's going to cause division. It's going to be a, there's not going to be harmony when you've got a, a flock that's fixed their eyes on the things above. Uh, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but it is from the world. And this world is passing away, also its lust, praise God. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. That's us. Children, it is the last hour. Somebody asked me the other day, do you think we're in the end times? Of course we are. 1 John 2.18 says we've been in the end times. It's been the last hour since uh, the first century. Now we're 20 centuries past the last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. That's the real issue. I'm not trying to decode 666. I'm not trying to figure out what European ruler might be the Antichrist or any of that. It doesn't bother me at all. I don't care. Okay? I hope he's alive. I hope he's on the planet today. That means we're that much closer. All right? But he's still a little horn. hasn't grown to prominence yet. hasn't uprooted three horns. We haven't, even reused, we haven't even gotten to the ten-horn stage of the beast yet. But the fact is, people get all worked up about the coming Antichrist. The real issue is the ones that are already here. And they've been here since the first century. Many Antichrists have come. And it says, um, even now, and from this we know it is the last hour, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. Isn't that something? So when you're identifying with the people of God, observe those who formerly identified, but now they've got a different identification. And why did they leave? Because they didn't belong here at all. If they had been of us, see, they weren't really of us. If they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be shown that they are not of us. Okay? So there's us and there's the not us. And we'd have to know this for what it is. 
Okay? And, and, and we want to apply this appropriately. This is not, oh, let me tell you, I'm not going to wrap up here with prayer, but this gets abused badly. Okay? We don't, uh, <laughs> you can leave a church for right reasons that, that don't apply to this passage. Right? We don't say with everybody who has a new pastor these days, well, we're so-and-so. Okay? We don't assign the Antichrist rebellion to those that depart in faith and, and you can leave in the right way. All right? But this text does address those who were never part of us to begin with. All right? And why in the world would anyone want to become a part of Austin Bible Church if they're not saved, they're not hungry for the Word of God, they're not... Because Satan has all kinds of agents. That he, where does he put them? He puts them in churches. All right? And so as that does occur, we identify it for what it is. And we thank God for being faithful. Well, that's Moses. We'll have Moses some more next week. Moses will, by faith, leave Egypt. And by faith, he's going to, uh, he's going to get a really cool father-in-law. Okay? I can't say much about his wife, but he's going to get a really cool father-in-law. And uh, he's going to have a ministry there. And then he's going to come back. And then he's going to bring them through the Red Sea. And there's just more things that Moses gets to do by faith. Father, I thank you for truth. I thank you for the blessings we have to study these things. I thank you for the examples. And we have so much more than Moses ever had. We've got more Scripture. We've got the Holy Spirit. We've got, we've got the body of Christ. We've got the royal family of God. We have our position being baptized into union with Jesus Christ. Father, uh, all of these blessings are so powerful. And really, do we, what excuse do we have to not walk by faith? None. And if we choose not to, if we choose to walk by sight and not by faith, Father, we know that our judgment will be far more severe than Israel ever dreamed of. Judgment begins with the house of God and and to whom much is given shall much be required. How much stricter judgment do we think we will receive? So Father, take hold of this doctrine and make it real to each one of us. While we walk by faith, we thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.